Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Rolo University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And today we welcome you to the first of our Capstone episodes. Vivek, do you want to tell our listener a little bit about what they can expect in the Capstone episode? You know, this is probably the best episode that we've done so far because we have a real expert. It's not just us babbling around about our simplified explanations of things. We're still going to really break things down for everybody and still talk at it uh, from, from what we know, but it's really good to consolidate this information with a real pathologist. And we have Dr. Emily Mason, who trained at Brigham and Women's in Hematopathology and is on faculty right now at Vanderbilt for Hematopathology coming in to, to give us her wisdom. I'm, I'm so excited. And, and, and to be honest, Looking back when we were producing this episode, I think it was such a really good reminder of how much I can say I've learned in just the last couple of weeks going through our HemePath series. And I think everybody will agree after they get through the capsule, even if it seems a little bit overbearing at times, you know what all this means if you just break it down into the simple components. And so really just take it all in and kind of just enjoy the ride. I, I, I had a great time recording with her for sure. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, you know, our first guest on the show, that's, that's a big deal, right? It's, it's going to be fun to, to have her on. And yeah, it, it's, uh, she's, she was a joy to record with. So I, I can't wait to see what the show ends up turning out. And the other big thing, I just want to throw this in. Dan is our chief science editor. She, she was impressed with him. And that's a big deal. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. Yeah, uh, go Dan. Go, go Dan. Dan. Go oh. Dan. Thanks, guys. So without further ado, let's get the show on the road. Welcome back, everybody, for another episode of The Fellow on Call. I'm so excited that we have our first guest with us here ever, so our inaugural guest, hematopathologist Dr. Emily Mason. Welcome, Dr. Mason. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So we've got a really good episode planned for you today that Dan's going to talk to everybody about here in a second. But first, we want to know a little bit more about you. So introduce yourself and give us an exciting thing that's happened since the pandemic has started for you. Sure. Well, I'm Emily Mason. I finished training in hematopathology five years ago, so now been at Vanderbilt for five years. And uh, an exciting thing that's happened, we last week just got a kitten for our kids who've been dying to get a cat for the past two years, so we finally nice. gave in. Nice. <laughs> that's so nice. <laughs> how it goes. We've got a cat, and at night, she just kind of crawls on the bed and just smacks us in the face to get her more food, so... I actually recommend an automatic cat feeder. Well, we are currently have all bedroom doors closed at night uh, for now anyway. We'll see. Nice. Nice. Smart. Very smart. Um, I also, uh, a friend of mine, his mom had a cat and the cat learned that uh, when she was on call, her pager would be on the nightstand and whenever it went off and the cat wouldn't get fed in the morning. So it started hiding the pager. So definitely guard, guard your pager on those call nights. Uh, Your cat will figure that out. Hide your pager. Hide your pager. (laughs) All right. So Dan, tell our listeners what we're doing in this episode today. 
Yeah, so today's going to be the first of our capstone episodes, um, sort of finishing off the hematopathology series we've been going through for the past few weeks. If you haven't yet, go ahead and definitely check out our flow cytometry episode, cytogenetics episode, immunohistochemistry episode, and molecular testing episodes. They'll give you a kind of a good foundation, and we're going to go over a lot of the topics that we covered in those episodes through a few cases today with the help of Dr. Mason. So, Ronak, do you want to lead us into our, our first case? Yeah. So, Dr. Mason, thanks again for being here. You know, the first case I wanted to present was actually a case that I was actually curbsided about from a friend of mine. So, hopefully, we can use this as an example to kind of walk through some of the techniques that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. So, the case is of a 53-year-old female who had noticed a painless lump in her right submandibular area, otherwise had no other symptoms when she had presented to her PCP. She followed up after two weeks, and it still persisted, unfortunately. So her PCP had recommended a CT neck, which showed a two-centimeter left cervical lymph node. So I, I'm curious now, now that we have this information about this, this patient that you know has this lump uh, that hasn't resolved after a couple of weeks, I was hoping that we could talk about what the next steps in the workup and management would be. Um, so Vivek, do you want to start this off? What what are some of the things that comes to your mind when you hear this clinical vignette? Yeah, so one of the most important things when it comes to this case is just knowing the anatomy of, of where the lymph node is that you're looking at. So here we're looking at a lymph node that's in the neck. Whenever I think about a lymph node in the neck, we've talked about in the last several episodes, we've been talking about heme paths. So, you know, you think about something like lymphoma when you think about an enlarged lymph node, but... It's also important to think about the other causes. So in your differential, you're thinking about the normal things like an infectious cause that uh, could be causing this adenopathy, and then also other solid tumor cancers. Is this a metastatic site of another solid tumor cancer? And common things being common, if you're talking about a lymph node in the neck, you always want to think at the back of your head, is this head and neck cancer? In this patient, I think probably less likely because she didn't have any other symptoms that would make us concerning for a head and neck cancer. But that's always on your differential. And then the other thing is, what's also close to the neck? Well, the lung. So is this a metastatic spot of a lung cancer? But truly, it could really represent anything. Um, and, and you ultimately want to first rule out something like an infectious cause, and then move on to your more scary causes like these cancers. So for her, because this, this lymph node didn't go away, it didn't seem like it was infectious, we got to know what's going on. I would want a biopsy. When we think about getting biopsies, there's multiple ways that we can do that. One way is through something called an FNA or a fine needle aspirate. And what that means is you're basically taking a little needle, sticking it into that lymph node and sucking out some cells. So it's it's something that can be done at the bedside. It's not a major procedure. The downside, though, is you're not getting as much tissue as you would with our next technique, which is the core biopsy. A core biopsy is where you take a larger needle, and it's almost like you're coring the inside of an apple. And so in this case, you're coring that lymph node to get a bigger chunk of the lymph node. Again, here, you wouldn't get the whole lymph node. You would just get a, a piece of the lymph node. So you always worry about things like sampling error. And then lastly, you could get an excisional lymph node biopsy, where you actually just cut the whole lymph node out, and that gives you a lot of detail. For this case, because honestly, when we think about a lymph node in the neck, we worry about some of those solid tumors as well, and not necessarily just the lymphoma. I would just get an FNA because we can we can palpate it. It's easy to do. You can do it that same day when you see the patient in clinic. 
And so when you are going after a lymph node like this, uh, Dan, are there certain tests that you can think of that would be helpful, especially in a situation where the differential of what this could be could can be quite broad? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that anytime that you're dealing with a small amount of cells, and uh, particularly cells that are already practically in suspension as you're getting a little aspirated sample back from these lymph nodes when you do an FNA, running these cells on flow cytometry can be a really good option because, again, you get so much information about each cell and about populations of cells and could potentially identify like clonal populational lymphocytes uh, using, using flow cytometry with FNA. If you're able to smear some of those cells out onto a slide and, and do some IHC, that would be that would be another thing you could do to try and characterize the cells on a phenotypic level. Uh, oftentimes, we won't have enough cells there with an FNA to to send off from molecular testing. But you know, depending on on the sample you get, you could try and send for that too. And so, the fact that we have lymphoma on the differential, though, you know, we've we have learned over and over again in in our training um, about the importance of understanding architecture. So. Can you guys comment a little bit on what the architecture implies and why that's important for the workup and management of these patients? Yeah, this is a really important concept. And I know that Dr. Mason's going to really give us more details and really how this works from, from a pathology perspective. But from my simplified perspective on what getting an architectural lymph node is and why it's important. So when we have a lymph node, we think about some cell got cancerous. And we've been talking about this. It, it cloned itself and it grew rapidly. And in, in lymphomas, we think that it took over the normal lymph node. And what that means is that you have this normal structure and architecture of a lymph node that we learned about in, in medical school that was like, you know, you have this these germinal centers, these follicles, there's all of this structure going around. But if you have a cancer, it doesn't care about that structure. It just takes over the whole thing. It what we call effaces the lymph node, meaning the cancer has just blown through all of that normal architecture. And that's when you worry about a cancer. So what we talked about before, those different ways of getting the biopsy, you can't get that detail if you just aspirate some a couple of cells. And sometimes you can get that detail with that core. But getting that whole lymph node gives you a much better sense of that of that architectural distortion. So, Dr. Mason, can you talk to us a little bit more about the process of looking at the morphology of lymph nodes and what do you glean from that first step? Sure. So the first thing, you know, if we have a, a piece of tissue to look at, we're looking at an H and E section, usually first off. And a few things that we try and, you know, get from that H and E. One is the architecture of the lymph node. So is there normal preserved architecture in the node or is architecture effaced or, you know, overrun by some abnormal process? And if we think that it's an abnormal process in the node, then what is the architecture of that abnormal process? Is it a nodular process like you might think in follicular lymphoma or is it a diffuse process it, like in DLBCL or CLL, something that just has a more sheet-like architecture in the node. And then we're also looking at the morphology of the cells themselves. So in addition to sort of the architecture of how they're growing, what do they actually look like? So how big are they? Are they small cells, which make us think about maybe more indolent lymphomas? Are they large cells that make us think about a more aggressive lymphoma? 
are there lots of mitotic figures that make us think the proliferative rate might be really high and maybe that's a more aggressive type disease? Is there necrosis that might be a key uh, or a sign of something more aggressive? So it kind of the, the growth pattern of the process, what the cells themselves look like, and then are there other features like fibrosis or necrosis or things like that that might give you a clue as well. And one thing I actually was always curious about, so you mentioned that with follicular lymphoma that you're looking for nodular areas and with a diffuse, like a diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, it's just that the whole lymph node has these large B-cells everywhere. So is it like with a follicular lymphoma, you just have clusters of, of these clonal populations? Right. So the way that they're growing, they're growing in a different organization. So in follicular lymphoma, you have right collections of the lesional cells or the malignant cells usually growing in the context of a follicle. And then in interfollicular areas, there might be just reactive T cells. Whereas in like a diffuse large B cell lymphoma, it's just a sheet like growth without any organization to it. So that was certainly a great discussion, guys. Thanks for sharing that with me. So just to kind of bring back the case, uh, so at this point, we had gotten the FNA from the patient, and all we were only able to glean from the FNA is that we saw large cells, but we weren't able to get any sort of architectural information. And the fact that we saw these larger cells based on what we just talked about definitely put something like a lymphoma higher on our differential than one of the solid malignancies. So I was just kind of curious what would be your next steps in approach to what to do next? That's a great question. And, you know, I just want to remind everyone again that the big thing, big reason why you may be wondering, why didn't you just get a core biopsy or an excisional biopsy? And the main reason is those are a little bit more difficult to get. And you can just get the FNA, and that can give you a solid tumor diagnosis right then and there. But in this case, we're worried about some sort of a large cell lymphoma. So we got to see if it's clonal. And we need to get some flow cytometry at this point. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about using flow cytometry to sort of determine the clonality of a population of cells. And, you know, as we talked about in our, our previous episodes, forward scatter gives us a good size of the, or a good appreciation of the size of a cell. And side scatter can kind of tell us how much junk or granularity is in it. And then we look at other cell surface markers, of course. And Dr. Mason, how do you determine what markers you're going to be looking for on flow when you get a biopsy sample? Is that sort of informed by the differential diagnosis or is there more of a standard panel that you run? Right. So different centers will do it differently. Sort of where I trained had a different sort of protocol versus how we do it here. So it depends a little bit on where you are. But the way that we do it at Vanderbilt is that we actually do a screening tube on every flow cytometry sample that comes in that gives us an idea about B cells, sort of the numbers and maybe the size of the B cells, T cells, and blasts are the main things that we're looking at in that screening tube. Do we think there's an abnormal population? And if we do, do we think it's myeloid and maybe blasts or lymphoid? And then from that original, from that screening tube, we can then add additional tubes. So if we see a big B cell population in that screening tube and they're all large, then we're going to add our B cell tubes. And that's looking at other B cell markers, looking at light chain, things like that. If we see in the screening tube that there's 50% blasts or what we think are blasts based on the few markers we have in that tube, then we're going to add our AML panels that look at more uh, markers that are more relevant in AML. So it depends on what we see first off, and then we can add additional tubes. That makes a lot of sense. Sort of, I like the stepwise sort of progression there. That's that's a good way to triage it. And you know, another thing we see on these reports a lot of times are 
things like you know bright versus dim signal is that something is there like a hard cutoff for that or is it more of a the pathologist is an expert and uses their expertise to look at these histograms and say eh, that's kind of dim that's kind of bright there's not i wouldn't say we really use numerical cutoffs in, on a day-to-day basis you can do that and for research purposes you might define things based on the mean fluorescence intensity, um, the MFI. But clinically, what we usually do are a couple of things. One, as you see more and more of these cell populations, you get a sense for what normal is. And so you can just tell looking at a plot that something's brighter than it usually sh- than a normal cell should be or something's dimmer than it, than it normally is. You also sometimes have normal background cells. So a lot of times there will be normal reactive B cells in the sample, but also our neoplastic B cell population. And so you can compare to that normal population that's there and say, it's brighter than we see on these background B cells. Gotcha. So like a nice internal control, like looking at the uh, the size of a lymphocyte nucleus when you're looking at red blood cells, that, that makes sense. And when you have these patterns of, so we've talked about how we, you know, certain CD markers tell you what type of cell that you're looking at. When we have this I see things like heterogeneous dim or heterogeneous bright. How does that affect your differential diagnosis? Does dim or bright really change things, or is it that certain diseases might have dim expression characteristically? It, it b- both. So sometimes it does help us identify the cell type. So sort of like building evidence that that is a blast, for instance. If there's dim CD45 expression, that is stereotypic of a blast. So when we say it's positive for CD45, dim, that's sort of helping build evidence that this is indeed a blast. And then we usually have other, you know, a lot of markers to go towards that. Like there's also CD34 expression. So sometimes it's putting together our evidence of what cell it is. Sometimes we're talking about the fact that it's an abnormal blast, for instance, and we note those heterogeneous or dim expression because that's abnormal. And that's something that suggests that it's an abnormal blast as opposed to a normal blast. So normal blast should be bright for CD38, for example. And sometimes we'll say that CD38 is dim or heterogeneous. And that's us sort of signaling that we think it's an abnormal myeloblast. And then that can also be helpful as you follow populations over time, like looking for minimal residual disease, for example, if you know what the abnormal phenotype was at diagnosis, sometimes you can look for that abnormal dim expression in later samples. And sometimes that can be helpful in picking out the lower level of disease. And then, as you said, some diseases have stereotypic patterns of expression. So for, for instance, CLL is a CD5 positive B cell lymphoma. Mantle cell is also a CD5 positive B cell lymphoma. And there are some differences in their expression of for example, light chain, CLL tends to have dim light chain, whereas mantle cell has bright light chain often. CLL tends to have dim CD20, whereas mantle cell is often brighter CD20. So when we see those things, we note them because again, that's suggestive that this is CLL versus mantle cell or something like that. I was just going to comment how I'm blown away every time we talk about flow cytometry, because as I learned in one of our prior episodes, there's just so much information that we're gleaning so fast and so quickly. And it's incredible how rapidly we're able to, you know, really narrow down our differential diagnoses based on this information and be able to figure out where we're going to go from here. Mm -hmm. That's, we really rely a lot on flow for most, a, a lot of heme diagnoses. Some things like Hodgkin lymphoma may not necessarily, um, 
show up very well on flow cytometry, but a lot of hematologic diagnoses, we can get a lot of help from flow, which is why we really advocate for if you have a heme malignancy on your diagnosis and you're doing a lymph node biopsy, definitely send for flow cytometry because there are some things we really can best do by flow, like telling, looking at light chain on a B cell and looking for monotypic light chain expression on a B cell can't really be done by immunohistochemistry. It's really flow cytometry. You need the flow to see that. You can use molecular techniques to see if there's a clonal B cell population, but the easiest and fastest way is with flow cytometry. So to switch gears for a second, one of the things that you've talked about, Dr. Mason, is that this whole monotypic light chain concept. So Ronak, I remember when you, some of your first days of fellowship, we you had sat down and had this path report and you told me, what the heck is kappa-restricted light chain? What does that mean? So now tell our listeners, what, what does this mean? What does a kappa-restricted light chain mean? What does a lambda-restricted light chain mean? And, and why is this helpful in diagnosing a, a lymphoma? So once again, as the mantra seems to have been, is we're trying to establish essentially clonal processes throughout this. So, you know, when you're, when you're uh, analyzing for kappa restricted or lambda restricted B cell populations, that's basically another way for us to say a monoclonal process because the lambda or the kappa refers to the structure of the antibody. And so essentially what we're helping to identify is whether or not there's a, there's a monoclonal process in place. Yeah. So a normal reactive B cell population, you should have some you know, some B cells have chosen kappa and some have chosen lambda when they've rearranged their immunoglobulin. And when you have a single, a process that's all stemming from a single cell, they're all going to express that same light chain. And so when you have this large population that all has the same light chain and maybe has other aberrant markers as well, like CD5 expression on a B cell, that's a sign that this is a mana, it's coming from the same Typically, it's a, a, a coming from one cell. You can have reactive processes that have restricted light chain and are polyclonal, monotypic, but polyclonal, which is why we often say monotypic light chain re- expression and not monoclonal light chain expression, because by flow cytometry, we can't technically say it's a clonal population, but it's a monotypic population and it's highly suggestive of clonal. That, that makes complete sense, That that you know that they have the same type of light chain, but you don't know if they came from the same originating clone because that's a, you know, that's a very, I don't want to say non-specific marker, but it's not as specific as defining the whole clone itself. And um, from my, just want to say from my simple head expo- understanding of all this, you guys, you guys remember that the the antibody has like this Y shape. Parts of that Y shape is what where these light chains hang off of. So whenever you hear in, in, in hematology in general, this kappa light chain, lambda light chain, that's that that top Y portion of the edges of the antibody. And we learned that in the basic sciences, there's a VDJ recombination, and these antibodies have either a kappa light chain specificity or a lambda light chain specificity. And I think that's a really important distinction to make. Uh, also, you know, it, it seems subtle, but uh, between monotypic and, and clonal, really, like we've talked about in our flow episode and a few others, we're, there are tests that we can do to characterize the phenotype of a cell, and there are tests that we can do to characterize the genotype. And and flow firmly falls into that in that latter category of phenotypic definition. That was such a great reminder about the importance of using our terminology correctly. So specifically monoclonal versus monotypic, and the differences between all these different words. And so I just wanted to bring us back again to our case. Specifically in our case, you know, a lot of this workup that we all just talked about 
was completed. And ultimately, what was on the report was that we had a morphologic large B cell population, and the flow was consistent with CD10 positive, CD19 positive, CD20 positive, CD79B positive, light chain restricted kappa cells. And that was certainly a mouthful. But Dan, maybe you can remind our listeners what that really means and why that might be significant. Sure. Even after everything we've been talking about and several weeks worth of episodes covering all these different tests that we run and what all these different markers mean, it can be intimidating to hear a list of different things. But it helps to just try and break them down, take them one at a time, think about what you know about each of these markers. So, you know, you have your CD19, their CAR T or or chimeric antigen receptor T cell products that we can use to target those. So there's CD20, famously targeted by rituximab, one of our monoclonal antibody drugs. Uh, Brand new monoclonal antibody, polituzumab, targets CD79B. So, you know, in addition to characterizing what type of cancer we're dealing with, a lot of times these flow results can have therapeutic implications too. And sort of sorting out what all these markers means is really a matter of taking the time to look through these results, um, kind of look things up that you're not familiar with, and try and grow your own base of knowledge so that when you see these things in the future, they're not so scary. That was great, Dan. Thanks again for that reminder. Uh, It's sometimes very easy to forget that all of the things that we're talking about when we're memorizing this long laundry list of different types of markers, that there is some clinical significance, and that's why it matters. So in this case, we went and uh, asked our surgeons for some help, and ultimately we were able to get an excisional biopsy on our patient. So Dr. Mason, one of the things that I I hear about all the time, especially when we're in medical school and residency, is that there are limitations to different types of techniques that we use in order to get pieces of, of a specimen, specifically like in this case, a lymph node. And in this particular instance, you know, I think everybody was rightfully concerned about the possibility possibility of a lymphoma. And so, you know, there are, we, we get asked this question all the time, is an FNA sufficient? Do we need a core? Does it have to be an excisional? Could you kind of talk about the limitations of each of these different methodologies and what are the limitations of them and, and how are they used kind of collectively to help us answer a question whenever we're unsure of where to go next? Sure. So, In pathology, we generally think that more is always better in terms of of the amount of tissue that we can get to look at. And those, these different types of samples have give us different amounts of tissue and in different forms. So the FNA is usually the smallest amount of tissue. A core biopsy gives us a bit more, and then an excision usually gives us a lot more to look at. An FNA can be helpful in establishing that there's an abnormal process going on. So for example, you might be able to take an FNA and do flow cytometry and see that there is a CD10 positive monotypic B cell population. And that's highly suggestive of a CD10 positive lymphoma perhaps. But then what we actually see on the slide with an FNA is just a smear of the cells. They're, they're just smeared out onto the slide. So there's no architecture in an FNA. So we can't tell if those CD10 positive cells are growing in clusters, like we talked about for follicular lymphoma, or are they growing in a diffuse sheet 
like maybe in a Burkitt lymphoma, which might not be that different in cell size, actually, between follicular lymphoma and Burkitt lymphoma, but the way they grow is very different. So the FNA doesn't let us see any of that architecture of how it's growing. So even if we can establish there's a CD10 positive lymphoma, and we even may get a, a little bit of information about cell size based on the forward scatter by flow and, and what we see on the on the smear, Again, we can't tell, even if there are some big cells in there, we can't tell if they're growing in clusters. So this is a high grade follicular or they're growing in sheets in the lymph node. And so it's probably DLBCL or something like that. The core is a, some, a bit of a step up because we do tend to get some architecture in a core. Usually we have a, a, at least a chance of getting the, the tissue architecture. And sometimes we can see the, the follicles in a follicular lymphoma, even on, on a small core. Some types of lymphoma, the core even may not be diagnostic because, for instance, in Hodgkin lymphoma, there are sometimes very rare abnormal cells or Reed-Sternberg cells in a reactive background. And a core may just go through the fibrotic capsule of the node and not catch any of the Reed-Sternberg cells. Or a core might go through a small area of the lymph node that has follicular lymphoma in it. And right next door, there's a transformation to diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And we've missed that entirely on the core. So we don't actually get a full picture of what's going on. So they can be diagnostic depending on what's going on. But they can be, there are limitations in that you just don't get as big a picture of, and the full picture of what's going on in the lymph node. And then there are certain types of tests that we might need to run and when you sort of add up all of the immunostains, for example, that we would do for a diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, and then we also want to do fish, depending on the, the size of the core, it's possible that we've cut through the entire core and we don't have enough tissue left to do the fish. So different issues depending on the situation, potentially. That's a, you know, it's something I hadn't even thought of. It's so tempting to think about these pathologic slides as being practically infinitely thin slices of tissue, but there is, there's a physical limit on the amount of tests you can run on a sample. Right. And every time we cut the block, we have to face into the block a little bit to sort of get it aligned correctly on the microtome. So that also, you know, if we order 10 stains and then we realize we thought it was going to be CLL, but actually it's DLBCL. And now we need to go back and cut the block again to get our fit, our slides for fish that also some of the tissue will get cut through just going back and resurfacing the block. So it's not unheard of. I mean, it, it definitely happens where we cut through the, the core and don't have enough tissue. So I think to summarize, yeah, that, that was amazing. Cause I, I didn't know most of the, what was just said. I, I say this a lot on this podcast, but it's all very true. And we're all learning together through this. Um, but to, to summarize from my understanding is that, you know, in our patient in this case, they got an FNA. With that FNA, we saw that there were large cells reported. We ran the flow cytometry, and we found that it was CD10 positive. But we couldn't really glean all that much more information. We didn't know enough about the architecture of the lymph node. And if and if in this example we had just aspirated small B cells, for example, and and we said that they're monotypic, meaning expressing the same sorts of markers, which is a, a way a, a way to say that they're clonal. It's not enough. We need to know the architecture. With a core biopsy, we may be able to get that architecture if we get the right spot, but we may be missing the bigger picture. We may have sampling error. So that's why the excisional is always better. The other big thing is that we may run out of tissue that that 
you get the core biopsy specimen and you don't have enough tissue to run all of the tests that we've talked about in these last few episodes, all of these really important tests to get us our diagnosis, our risk stratification, and in some cases, targeted treatment options. And, and, and you know, having all of this information is incredibly important to treating our patients with these cancers. And we... I mean, we understand in pathology, we say more is better and we want an excision, but we also understand the clinical context and that a retroperitoneal mass, it's very difficult to go in and excise a piece of that and getting a core is the best way to target it. And, you know, often if it's a DLBCL and we see DLBCL, then we can be judicious in cutting our slides and make sure we save enough for fish and we can, it can be diagnostic, it can be adequate. It's just, you know, in a perfect world. Yeah, you know, I think if, if I had to paraphrase it, it's like lymphomas can be sneaky and you, you don't want to let them hide anywhere that you, you can let them get away with it. One of the other big things that I, that I want to highlight out of this that we've been talking about, these small cells, these large cells, things like that. In general, one important thing to note is that small cells are more indolent processes, whereas large cells are more aggressive processes. Yeah, I, that's generally the case. As you just said, lymphomas can be sneaky. <laughs> and, um, you know, one thing that comes up not infrequently is we will see a double hit lymphoma, which is a super aggressive B-cell lymphoma, which actually can sometimes have morphology that's closer to the sort of medium, maybe small to medium sized cells, but actually is a super aggressive lymphoma. So there are, there's always something sneaky, but generally, yes. And we don't base it just on the cell size. So, you know, if we see something that's sort of medium in size, but has a very high proliferative rate and is positive for MYC and BCL2 by IHC, then we're going to go down a different path, even if the cells don't just look very large in size. But yes, generally, large cell lymphomas are more aggressive and small small B cell lymphomas, small T cell lymphomas are, are more indolent. Dr. Mason, one of the things that we had discussed was the complementary nature in which IHC is a part of kind of this, this diagnostic algorithm. And so, you know, I was hoping to kind of switch the conversation a little bit to talk about the clinical utility of IHC. And if you can maybe talk us through the utility of IHC in conjunction with flow when you're, when you're kind of facing a, a new diagnosis. So they're definitely complementary to each other because there are some markers that we, it's really best to look at by flow. And there are other markers that are really best to look at by IHC, or, you know, we, we don't have the ability to look at them by flow. We rely on the IHC. Flow is nice in that you can say definitively that the markers you're looking at occur on the same cell. So you're looking at a CD10 positive B cell, and you can say definitively that that 10 positive cell also has kappa light chain. Whereas IHC, you're looking at tissue sections. So sometimes it's hard to say definitively that the cell that's positive for CD20 in this section is the same cell that's positive for CD5 in this section. Whereas by flow, you can stain the cell for both markers and say definitively, yes, the 20 is on the same cell that the five is on. So flow is really helpful in some ways. But then we don't have markers, you know, for we don't have every marker available by flow cytometry. So we rely on IHC for some markers as well. For instance, for DLBCL, there are markers that we use for prognosis or disease classification that we can't do by flow. We, we do them by IHC. That's really great. 
I just wanted to once again talk about the case, give you all an update of, you know, what was happening in, in real time, just to kind of complement this fantastic discussion. So we were able to get the uh, excisional biopsy. And on the excision, there was evidence of diffuse effacement of these large cells. And the flow cytometry from the lymph node also matched what we had previously on our FNA. And so this further raised concern for a diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. We had also done IHC staining on this, and some of that information was back in this PATH report as well. And so the results of that suggested that it was BCL2 positive, BCL6 positive, and KI67 proliferative index was at 60%. So Dr. Mason, when we see information like this, especially in regards to the IHC component of this of this outcome, is there a IHC panel per se that you guys use to help with risk stratification in situations like this? Yes, we do. So, you know, for, for instance, for DLBCL, we, there are sort of, sort of a, a panel of markers that we do for prognosis. So the Hans classification, we look at cell origin. We do that using CD10, we have by flow cytometry, but the other two, BCL6 and MEM1, we don't have by flow. We do them by IHC. BCL2 and MYC, we look at protein expression. We do those only by IHC. Some, some centers can do flow cytometry for BCL2. We don't do that here. We do it by IHC. We do EBER. We look for EBV expression. Only We do that by in-situ hybridization, not by flow cytometry. And we do KI67 by IHC, not by flow. Speaking of in situ hybridization, one of the things that we've talked about before is is the use of cytogenetic techniques to look for chromosomal changes. And in the, in the case of, of lymphomas and DLBCL, we've talked about rearrangements looking for MYC, BCL2, and BCL6 to classify whether this is a quote-unquote double-hit lymphoma or more aggressive lymphoma, which could change our treatment management. So can you, can you walk us through a little bit about how long it takes to run fish testing for the, for like a diffuse large B-cell lymphoma? So the process of fish involves, I guess, you know, from start to finish, we, we cut slides from the paraffin block. Those slides get sent over to the cytogenetics lab. The cytogenetics lab will then there's a protocol to sort of de-paraffinize or make the cells available so that the fish probes can bind. So that's the sort of beginning of the process. And then they'll apply the fish probes. They will hybridize. Generally, it depends on the probe set. Anywhere from, you know, for acute promyelocytic leukemia, when we're looking for stat fish for PML rara, that can be, that can hybridize for three hours and then we can get a a result quickly. But generally the hybridization is longer than that. So maybe it's hybridizing overnight and then someone is coming in and looking at the slides the next day, quanti- you know, quantifying things, and then it's getting passed on to the cytogeneticist and the pathologist to sign it out. So it's a multi-day process. One of the other things that I really have always been curious about is, you know, we, we've, I, I see these things called break-apart probes and dual-color, dual-fusion fish probes. And when I look at these fish reports, they always talk about like abnormal copies of MYC are present, or sometimes they'll say, Ab, you know, a rearrangement is present. Can you talk to us about specifically for this uh, diffuse large B cell lymphoma case? How do we know if there's an actual chromosomal translocation rearrangement that we're actually looking for to for this prognostic information? So, hopefully, the fish report 
will clearly say that there is a rearrangement or there's not a rearrangement because we don't want you all to have to interpret the the um, fish karyotype with the nuclear ish and you know that part of it because it should just be clear in the report. But to in order, but to interpret that, I mean, it's great to know you know what that means and how to interpret it. And so it depends on the type of probe set that you're using and what you're looking for in any given fish sample. So we can generally do two things with fish. We can count numbers. So how many signals are there? Is there a gain or a loss of a chromosome or a locus? And we can look at rearrangements either by looking at a break in a gene or by looking at two genes coming together that shouldn't normally be together. And the, the way to look for those rearrangements is, as you said, either with a dual color, dual fusion probe or with a break apart probe. And a break apart probe is generally targeting a single gene like MYC or BCL6. And you have one probe, one part of the probe binds at the front of the gene and one part of the probe binds at the end of the gene. And you look for a break apart of those two signals. So a red and a green signal. And when they're together, they're both, if MYC is intact and they're both sitting where they should be, they're right next to each other and you get a fusion, a, a yellow signal. But if the gene is rearranged, then those two pieces of MYC are in separate parts of the cell. And then, so you're, you break the yellow signal into a red signal and a green signal. So when you're looking at the readout of that, you start with an intact probe set. In a normal gene, you have an intact probe and you break them apart in the rearrangement. So then you're looking for the word sep, which means separated. So three prime is separated from five prime. That means the MYC gene is broken apart and they're, they're away from each other, that's abnormal. If you have a dual color, dual fusion probe set, that's usually looking at two genes. So the immunoglobulin gene and the BCL2 gene. And you have a red signal on the immunoglobulin gene and a green signal on the BCL2 gene. Normally, they should be in separate parts of the cell. But if there's a rearrangement involving both those genes, that brings the signals right next to each other. And you get the green right next to the red and you get a fusion yellow signal. For that type of probe, a dual color, dual fusion, you're looking for the probes coming together to show that the genes are right next to each other. That's where you're looking for the IGH con or right next to or with the BCL2. That means they've come together. There's a, there's a rearrangement involving those two. They're, they're right next to each other. That's the abnormal signal in that case. So it depends on the type of probe set for what your readout is going to be and what's normal and what's abnormal. And generally, if it's targeting a single gene, it's often a break apart probe looking for just breakage of that gene. If it's a if it's a probe looking at, at two different genes and looking for the rearrangement of those two specific genes, it's often a dual color, dual fusion, trying to bring them together. That makes sense. Yeah, I'd never do that. I, I truly did not understand that, which is, you know, that, that's what that's what the purpose of this is, right? Is to, okay. is to learn these things. Um, you know, one, one thing that I did know is that I, I always noticed that when it had the word con in there, that that meant that there was a rearrangement. Right. And so I always was just like chili con queso from a Mexican menu. Exactly. So, I, uh, you, you <laughs> know, so if, <laughs> they're, with, they're with each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're with <laughs> each other. So, 
you know, that, that's helpful for me to for me to remember this. And and just for our listeners to know, I in our previous episodes, we had talked about how cytogenetics and fish is chromosomal changes. And I don't want you guys to get confused with the terminology of genes and chromosomal changes. We're still talking about these larger genetic rearrangements that are happening on two genes that are on two separate chromosomes and that come together. Like the 1517 is like the PML gene and the RARA gene coming together, for example. So that's what we mean when we're, when we're talking about these fish studies. So I just wanted to bring everybody back to the case one last time. In this case, the fish ended up being normal for this patient, thankfully. Um, and so the patient was started on treatment with curative intent. To be honest, I myself have to refresh my memory on what the treatment actually was. So we'll talk about that on a later episode once I've read up on that a little bit more. It's a good episode, guys. It's going to be, it's a really, really good episode on lymphomas. And I'll definitely be needing the help of these guys. So stay tuned for that. But just one more question, Dr. Mason, before we we end for today. Say, for instance, on the review of the lymph node, you were more suspicious of metastatic disease from an oncological etiology. Is it then IHC that you're going to be using to determine where the primary site of origin may be? So for instance, I remember us talking previously about TTF1 as a, as a marker that's associated with lung cancer. So is this the way that you guys go about trying to find out what the primary source might be? Yeah. So if we look at a lymph node biopsy and we see what looks like a non-hematopoietic process, we absolutely rely on IHC um, to tell us what those cells are, where they came from. Um, And there are uh, characteristic stains that can tell you that are specific for site of tissue of origin. For instance, like you said, TTF1 is highly suggestive of a lung primary. There are others that um, are will tell you that it's a carcinoma, but don't necessarily tell you where it came from. Like CK7 and CK20 are keratins and they're positive in carcinomas and not in lymphomas. So you can say it's a metastatic carcinoma, but it's not necessarily definitive where it came from. So CK7 can be positive in stomach and pancreas, I think you're out of my area of expertise now, but um, generally they're, they may not be completely specific for a site of origin, but they can tell you it's carcinoma, it's not lymphoma, or there are markers that tell you it's melanoma, um, things like that. And, and absolutely IHC can help with that. So I think that's about all the time that we have in today's episode, the first of our two capstone episodes on hematopathology. Thanks again, Dr. Mason, for taking the time to join us this evening um, and share your your words of wisdom. I know that I've certainly learned a lot, and I know that uh, the rest of us have also done the same. Of course, it was great being here. I've had a great time talking with you guys. And hopefully that means that you'll be willing to come back for part two next week. Absolutely. Wonderful. Then we look forward Excellent. to having you then. Uh, until then, everyone, have a good have a good night. Take care. See you later. Later. later.